Happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. Speaking on behalf of dads everywhere, sometimes being a dad is a tough task. I had the very good fortune of being raised by a really good dad, so I count myself as quite fortunate for that reason. I like to, on Father's Day, remember my own father because he was a good guy. All right, turn to the book of Mark. That is where we are this morning. We've been working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, and we are at the moment in chapter 4. We will be picking up this morning in verse 26. You may recall in the early going in the book of Mark that I said Mark is really emphasizing Jesus' authority. We have seen several demonstrations of that authority. As I said in the introduction to the book of Mark, Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of Jesus said. He emphasizes Jesus does. And he tells us a lot of the things that Jesus did, and he's going to do that again coming up in chapter 5. He's going to talk about Jesus' authority over demons. We've already seen Jesus withstand the 40 days of temptation that he had to go through in the wilderness and his power over the devil himself. And now we're going to see him take authority over demons. We've seen him take authority over sickness. We've seen him take authority over the religions of the world and place himself at the center of the religious universe. This morning we're going to see him take authority over those things that human beings simply don't have any authority over. He's going to take authority over wind and rain. And if you want to see real authority, and if you want to feel your own weakness, your own incapability, your own inability, next time it's raining, run outside and yell at it to stop. (laughs) And see if you are effective in the least. Because I can promise you, I can guarantee you, you're not. You won't be. In fact, you can stand out there yelling all day at the rain, and all you're going to get is wet. And you're going to see again the apostles trying to figure out who this is they're dealing with. One of the things that I have tried to emphasize in this study of the book of Mark is that Mark is making sort of a beeline for the cross. He's going to spend a lot of time in the latter part of his gospel talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. So in the early going in the book, what he's doing is helping you to understand who that is that's going to end up on the cross. The story of the cross doesn't matter if it's just a story of one of the thieves who died on either side of Jesus. If it's just the story of Barabbas, if it's just a story of another thief, another robber, another bad guy who put off death for a little while and then later died anyway, it doesn't matter. But if this is the Son of God who ends up on a cross, well, then it matters not only now in time, but it matters infinitely because he was accomplishing something that had infinite value, which is the reason that he came to the planet in the first place to do that particular thing, to die for his people as a substitute for his people so that those people would eternally end up in glory with their father. 
I will call him father all morning in keeping with Father's Day. Now, before we can reach the point where we talk about Jesus taking control over the seas and the waves and demonstrating to his apostles yet again that he is the son of God so that they understand when he goes to the cross that this isn't just another in a long series of deaths, but that this is the death on which all human life depends and pivots and all of heaven and earth and eternity is decided on the basis of that death. Mark is taking the time to show you that he is the absolute son of God who is in sovereign control of absolutely everything, including wind and rain. Before we can get there, we have to look at two short parables that are at the end of chapter four here. These two parables we're going to understand within the context of what we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about the parable of the sower and the soils, and we talked extensively about Jesus' own explanation of it and what that means, and it was really helpful that Jesus took the time to tell us what it means. But in these next two short parables, Jesus doesn't tell us. He just kind of lays them out there. Fortunately, we already have some of the working ingredients because of the previous parable of the sower and the soils. So that's going to help us to understand it a little bit. But by the time we get to verse 29, I have read multiple different commentaries this week. And I will tell you what the different interpretations of that are. Because the truth is, since it is a parable without an explanation there's a great many ways that it has been explained through the years. I prefer to explain things in context, but even my explanation of the parable, or at least my preferred explanation of the parable, I'm just giving it my best bet. So if you have a different interpretation, that's fine, and I will defend your right to be wrong. So... So let's start at Mark chapter 4. Thus endeth the introduction. I want credit on Father's Day that today the introduction was a mere 10 minutes. I know. Thank you. You bunch of sarcastic people. We're in Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 26. He was saying, Jesus was saying, the kingdom of God is like... A man who casts seed upon soil. Okay, good. We've already seen the sower and the soil. So at least we have a starting place as we go through this. You will notice that in this particular parable, Jesus did something that he does occasionally, which is that he created a simile. Those English majors in the crowd will understand what a simile is. What is the difference between a simile and a metaphor? Simile has like or as metaphor just says it is it is very good anytime you see a comparison that uses the word like or the word as that's considered a simile a metaphor is when you say it just is this so he's saying the kingdom of god is like a man who casts seed upon the soil now jesus knows what the kingdom of god is like he knows what heaven is like That's his home. He knows it like it's his living room. He knows the kingdom of God like the back of his hand. 
but he understands that human beings aren't going to be able to comprehend the vastness and the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of the kingdom of God. How can we possibly comprehend such things? And he's using the word the kingdom of God here in such a way that it's going to be descriptive of how God's presence and his word and faith in God spreads in the earth. And he's going to call that the kingdom, the outgrowth of God. And he knows that we don't get it. In fact, in verse 27, he's going to say that the man himself who's casting out the seed He himself does not know. Jesus is real clear to say there's parts about the kingdom of God you just don't know. You just can't comprehend. You just can't get it. That's because those parts are up to God. You have no control over those things. You just do your part. Your part is cast the seed. Now based on what we saw last week, what's the seed? The word of God. Just cast the word. Now, we looked at how the word or the seed last week, we saw how some of it falls on good ground. Great. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, fruit-bearing. Great. Good ground. But then we saw three other kinds of ground that the seed fell on that produced nothing because it was either packed down or it was rocky and the birds came and plucked it up or it got choked away by thorns. But you will notice that the sower still threw seed in all those areas. And so as you're throwing seed to plant in a field 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, you did it by hand and you did it by casting it out there. You had no control over where the seed fell. You just threw it out into the field. And if some fell on the rocky parts and got taken away by birds, well, that's just what happened. That's what it takes in order to get the seed to the good soil. Are you getting the comparison yet? Our job is to cast the seed. Our job is to promote the word. Now, there are folks on the planet who are who are known lovingly as hyper-Calvinists. Have you ever heard that term, hyper-Calvinists? And one of the hallmarks of the hyper-Calvinistic way of thinking is they say we should only preach to the elect, which would be fine if we knew who the elect were. It would have been much easier if God had made the elect obvious. Maybe make their hair stand up on one side or have them glowing bright fluorescent orange or something so that when we saw those people, we could go, oh, good, you're the elect. Have I got something to tell you? But since we don't know who the elect is, since we don't know who the elect are, I'm an English major. Did I mention that? (laughs) Since we don't know exactly who the elect are, we preach to anybody, everybody, far and wide. Anybody that will sit down and listen, our job is to tell them. And so the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. All Jesus is getting at there is the time passes. He goes to bed. He gets up every day. He's living his life. You will notice what he's not doing. He's not standing over the seed, yelling at it to grow. He's not beating the seed. 
He's just putting it out there and then leaving it to do what seeds do. But he's not in control of it. How many of you have ever planted, watered, and grew anything? Okay, that's, that's just about everybody. Okay, did it grow better when you yelled at it? <laughs> grow! I need tomatoes! Does that get you anywhere? No, nothing good comes of that. In fact, you have no control. If you plant a tomato, which we have done, we've planted upside-down tomato plants. And then we waited every day. Oh, we fertilized and we watered and we waited and we went out every day. And I'd say to Megan, any tomatoes yet? Longingly? And she'd say, no, we better go to Food Lion. And we'd go buy tomatoes while there was a tomato plant on our front porch. We had zero control is my point. It didn't matter how badly I longed for the tomatoes. No tomatoes. We had one tomato plant grew zero tomatoes. Oh, it grew lush and it grew long and it had vines and it was just great. No tomatoes. No yelling at it. No hoping, no begging it, no cajoling, no pleading with it, made it bear fruit. Do you get what I'm saying? And so Jesus takes the time to say, he goes to bed at night, he gets up by day, and the seed sprouts up and grows how he himself does not know. He doesn't know how the seed grows. He just knows if you put the seed in the ground, then plants grow. And that, by the way, is as much as any of us know. That if you take a seed and you put it in the ground, little water, little fertilizer, hey, it grew something. But you don't know how that happened. You didn't do it. You're not in control of it. Well, Jesus knows that. Remember, he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about how the word is dispersed. He's talking about the word being broadcast out there. And then when it bears fruit, it has nothing to do with you. You didn't do it. You didn't cause it. You have no control over it. Likewise, you can't beat people. You can't yell at people. You can't emotionally long for people to bear fruit and have faith. You can't do that if you put the word out and people come to faith in Christ. That's between them and God. You had nothing to do with it. What did Paul say? Paul said, I plant Apollos waters. It's God that gives the increase. So all we can do is plant the seed, disperse the seed, put the word out there, and trust that God, by his spirit, will do the parts that only God can do, that we can't do. Verse 28, the soil produces crops by itself. That's his way of saying, we don't know how that works, but it works. You throw the seed out there, and then the soil produces crops by itself. So what is that telling us? If we disperse the word of God and it falls on the good soil, it's going to produce fruit. We don't know how. It's not up to us, but it works. It works. The word works. God said back in Isaiah that his word would not return unto him void, but would accomplish that whereunto he sent it. 
He sends his word to people, and that word accomplishes things because the Almighty God has determined what his word is going to accomplish. And that, I say again, is not up to you. What's your job? Disperse the word. Put the word out there. Let the word do its work. That's why here at GCA for all these years, we've just been pounding on the Bible. Because I actually believe and actually trust that the word will do its work. If I stand up here and tell you fishing stories and sports analogies, it might be entertaining. And you might go home and think, oh, Jim was so clever. But it's not going to help your soul. It's not going to help your eternity. It's not going to help your relationship with God. What you need is the word of God from God in order for you to have any confidence and faith in God. So we go back again to the word, to the word, to the word. When the word is planted in the good soil, it produces crops all by itself. First, there's a blade. This is just Jesus saying that he understands how these things work. First, there's a blade. And then there's a head. And then a mature grain grows in the head. That's exactly how wheat grows. Let's say you're planting corn. It doesn't immediately grow up in the ear of corn. You don't walk outside and go, look, there's an ear of corn on the ground. The way that you know you're being successful is that a stalk grows up first. And you go, oh, good, I've got some corn growing. I can't wait. And then eventually there's leaves and a husk, and you're still waiting. And then eventually there's a kernel of edible corn growing on the cob. And, well, great, finally. And so Jesus described it that way. First, there's a blade, then there's the head, and then when the mature grain grows, it grows in the head, and then you can harvest it, and you have something to eat. Okay, how does that compare to what he's saying happens when you put the word of God out? I believe what he's saying is, it's not up to you, and you don't understand it, and people do not become born again and instantly Bible experts. It's a, it's a process. Remember what Jesus said? When seed falls on the good soil, they're going to bear fruit, but some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And I said to you last week, just because you've got 60-fold going doesn't mean that you have any right to judge the 30-fold people because they're bearing fruit too. And just about the time you get pretty uppity about your 60%, somebody's going to come along with their 100% and make you feel bad. So you don't need to be fruit inspecting. You just need to be sure that you're bearing fruit. 30, 60, 100. Okay, the point is nobody starts fully formed, fully Christian, fully understanding, fully comprehending doctrine, fully understanding the Bible. You don't start there. You start at, I'm wretched. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And then the simplicity of the gospel that everyone who believes in Christ will be saved and will be forgiven. That simplicity starts your journey. And you understand the necessity and your need of Christ. And then you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. And you start understanding doctrinal things. And you start getting biblical things. And, and you probably would be willing to admit, boy, that's a terrible sentence. How many of you would be willing to admit that you have grown in the grace and knowledge of God in the last, let's just say, three years. 
Yeah, right away. Because that's the way it works. It starts just a blade. And then eventually it grows a little bit more. And then there's a, there's a head that looks like it's going to produce fruit. And then eventually there's good fruit growing inside the head of grain. Okay, I think Jesus is saying it's a process. It's a growing thing. But then verse 29 says, but when the crop permits, he immediately, there's Mark's use of the word immediately again. When the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. That's the verse that I said, I have read commentary after commentary after commentary, and everybody seems to have a different interpretation of it. Uh, there is one interpretation, one of the more common ones that I have found, that says what that's about is that God starts you out not knowing anything, and then he produces faith and grows you, and then the, the harvesting part is that he puts you in the church. Makes no sense to me. Because when Jesus was speaking to his Jewish audience, the entire concept of the church didn't exist yet. When he spoke this parable, would he have been expecting that his apostles were going to understand that it meant you get put in the church? Well, no. There's another interpretation of it, which I find really fascinating, and yet it's very common. That in the life of the believer, as you're growing in faith and confidence in God, as you're growing in faith in Christ, when you reach that point of spiritual fullness or maturity, that's the point at which God ends your life. And that's the harvest part. God harvests your life and you go off to heaven. I also reject that thinking. Because what that would mean is the church never has the benefit and the good graces of having a mature Christian with them. Because as soon as you reach maturity and the point where you can instruct others and you understand what's going on, God takes you out. So the church is left to just kind of wander in the wilderness forever going, man, I hope somebody figures something out. Anyway, I don't like that one either. Across the board in the Bible, when Jesus speaks of harvesting, it's usually end-of-the-world stuff. It's usually eschatological stuff. It's usually the angels coming like reapers, putting in their sickle. That's the language of the book of Revelation. Jesus told a parable about the wheat and the tares, and Jesus saying, leave them both until the end of the age, and then when it's time, you'll gather them up together and we'll separate the tares from the wheat and throw the tares into the fire. Okay, that's all eschatological language is my point. I prefer to think then, contextually, that what Jesus is getting at here is also end-of-the-world stuff because he is talking in the big picture about the kingdom of God. That's how he began. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil so then when the crop grows up and since it's a crop he's not talking about individual plants or individual seeds he's talking about a whole field at this point and when the crop is fully mature when it's ready when it permits then he puts in his sickle because the harvest has come I prefer to think that that is 
the end of the age gathering of the church and the judgment of those tares that are in the field. If you have a different interpretation, I welcome your, uh, your interpretation. I'm going to stand here and drink some water. Let me know what you think. Your interpretation doesn't depend on thinking that he refers to God or, or the Christ. It's, it's still the man. Still the man. All right. He puts in the sickle. It's just a reg- regular mortal who doesn't know how anything grows. Right. He puts in the sickle. What is that? It's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Who puts in the sickle? The owner of the field. He's the one that's harvesting because it's his field. Right. Right? Right. And so I think Jesus is still referring to himself as the owner of the whole field. He's speaking of the man here, but I think the interpretation, the understanding of it, is that the owner of the field is going to bring about the harvest. And he would be the owner. Well... There are two problems with that. One is it's not capitalized. And, and the other is that throughout the, you know, 26 through 29, he's talking of he as a regular mortal. Right. It's not Jesus. First, I'll talk about the capitalization thing, and then I'll give you my, my response to it. Um, the original text in Greek was all capital letters. And so whenever you see capitalization in the Bible, that's just an interpreter or Bible translator who chose to capitalize it. So you can't really develop your theology based on the capitalizations. That's not inspired. Secondly, I began by saying that this is a tough parable to understand because Jesus doesn't ultimately tell us what it means. And so the best thing we can do is give our best understanding of it If there is a consistent understanding that can be drawn from the fact that it's the man, uh, instead of it being Christ that's bringing about the harvest, it's a man bringing about a harvest. If that can somehow be understood or interpreted in a way that is consistent with everything else Jesus has said, I'm fine with that. Do do some of the people that you've been reading uh, think that it's... The, yeah. man, the man is then enabled to take advantage yeah. of the spiritual growth. Yes, in fact, I read one commentary, I will point out, a very Arminian commentary that took the time to say, since it is the man who does that, that this is the point where our human responsibility kicks in. And so it is then our responsibility to bring those people into the church. Mm-hmm. And I just can't go with that so I have to understand the concept of the harvest in the overall context of Jesus talking about harvest and invariably that's always eschatological end stuff so I kind of have to go there yes since it's Christ's church he gets credit for spreading the word even though he uses us to do it doesn't he sure it's his word if he hadn't given us the word in the first place, would we have anything to spread? Right. I feel like there's not a conflict there, though, yeah. because he's still ultimately spreading the yeah. word in his field, right. and he's the harvester. Which Even when the sower goes out to sow, whose seed is it? Whoever owns the land has bought the seed. He puts the sower out in the field sowing. Right. Yeah. Not going to go do that myself. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, Joel uh, chapter 3, verse 11 says, bring down your warriors, O Lord. So we're talking about the Lord. The next verse, it says, uh, 
There I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. So Joel's interpretation is right where you're at. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very consistent that the harvest language is eschatological end times judgment language. Yes, ma'am. Did uh, anybody interpret that as a tithing? As a tithing thing? Yeah. No, I didn't see that anywhere. Oh, I'm surprised. And thank um, goodness for it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, you know, you grow up, and when you return off, uh, man takes, you know, from you. Takes the, the Doggone it, I think that's the right interpretation. No. <laughs> I'm surprised. I, I thought a lot of people would go that way. I haven't heard that. Yes? Uh, if you don't harvest the fruit, it dies, and it's ruined. Yeah. So it has to be harvested. Yeah, it's good. While it's ripe, immediately. That's what he says. Yeah, it's good typology, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. Did you have your hand up, Sandy? Yeah, um, I was going to say you have to line it up with the other scriptures in, in its context. They, they yeah. all say the same thing when you line them up in, in their perspective. Yeah. That one can't stand out by itself. Context. Context, context, context. We're very big on context here at GCA. All right, have we done enough damage to that parable? (laughs) Well, then in chapter 4, verse 30, he's going to throw out yet another parable. And he says, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? So he's still talking about the kingdom of God. He's still trying to explain the kingdom of God to people who aren't going to be able to comprehend it, but he's also hiding the truth from people who don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. So he's speaking continually in parables. How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which was sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil. Yet, when it is sown... It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and it forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. End of the parable. What's he getting at? Yes, ma'am? Just, is this the earthly kingdom? He's not talking about heaven, or is he talking about heaven and not the earthly kingdom? He's talking, based on the previous parable, he's talking about the way the kingdom of God spreads on planet Earth. Okay, gotcha. So it's not not heaven, it's Right. I expect your tithe from that one. Okay. But since he said it's the kingdom of God, what we know for sure is it starts like a mustard seed, which is, he points out, the smallest of all seeds. So what we know is he's saying it starts small. In this wicked, sin-soaked world, in this domain of darkness, where the prince of the power of the air rules over the planet, there is this little bit of light starting out. Jesus comes to the planet, and he picks 12 people. Out of everybody who's ever lived on planet Earth, that's mighty, mighty small. And he says, but that's how it begins. That's how it starts. And then eventually it's going to grow and grow and grow until you get to the book of Revelation. And we read that there are myriads, thousands upon thousands of people, every kindred, every tongue, every tribe, every nation that are all worshiping God. So the ultimate end of that is 
exponential growth from something that started very, very small. So apparently the enterprise of the kingdom of God on planet Earth is that Jesus came, he chose 12, he gave them his word, he said broadcast that word freely, throw it out there everywhere. As you do that, the word is going to accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish and the kingdom of God is going to grow and going to increase until ultimately it becomes bigger than all of the plants and it forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Now there are, I will admit, there are interpretations, commentaries that say that the reference to birds on branches is a negative, that it may be carrion birds. And so it's a, it's a negative thing that the kingdom of God not only grows, but that it also is infested with bad actors. The same way that as the good fruit grows up, there's also tares in the field. And so some people make that equation. I think if you just take the parable at face value for what it says without importing any other ideas from any other parables into it, what you get is simply the idea that the kingdom of God starts very, very small and then continues to grow, and it grows to the point where it becomes the biggest of all kingdoms, which we know from the book of Revelation, it absolutely does end up being the biggest of all kingdoms, as all the kingdoms of the planet end up having to do obeisance to the kingdom of God on planet Earth. So that would be my interpretation. Anybody got anything else, George? Uh, <laughs> no. As much as I like to talk, I can't think of anything to say. <laughs> Anybody got anything else? You want to add anything? Because we're going to move off the parables here into a bit of narrative that I find really fascinating narrative. I guess I have to throw something in on the birds part. Okay. If anything... In my, in my opinion, the birds will probably be representative of the, the harvest. At the end of the harvest, the birds are going to have their share field of, of the unrighteous. I'm not going to over-extrapolate. I, I read a really good quote, and I really should have written it down so I could read it to you. But one of the theologues that I read really emphasized that parables have one essential meaning. And he said, once you find that core essential meaning, don't make too much of the details around it. But if I were going to talk about the birds in the branches, I would say, what do birds do in branches? They're resting. That's why they're there. They're not flying. They're not eating. They're settling down. They're resting. I like that better because I'm thinking about God's rest. See how quickly your mind changed. And so... So, yes, I think maybe Jesus was saying the kingdom of God is going to grow into a place where birds of every stripe, every feather can, can find rest. Yes. Maybe that's what he's getting at. Yes, Steve? I think the only point he's making here is that this is an herb that grows large enough that birds can rest on it. I don't think there's any significance to the, to the birds being there except that here's a plant that grows from a tiny little seed but becomes large enough birds can make a nest. Start small, gets big. Yeah. I think that is the primary message. The kingdom of God starts small in the earth and then grows until it's larger than any other kingdom. I think that's the essential point. 
Verse 33, and with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. That's the part of the conversation I want. That's the part Mark should have included. At this point, he should have said, and this is what he said about the parable of the mustard seed. Mark doesn't tell us. So we're just left to kind of interpret those couple of parables. Verse 35. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Okay, let's think just a moment about who's saying that. Is he the sovereign Lord? Yes. Yeah. Is he in control of everything? Yes. Does he know the future? Yes. Does he know what's coming up? Yes. Does he know there's a storm coming? Yes. Does he know it's going to blow across the Sea of Galilee? Yes. Then why does he tell his disciples to get in a boat and go out on the Sea of Galilee? Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up with water. But he was asleep. How much confidence do you have to have if there's a storm so bad that it looks like we're all going to die, we're all going to perish? In fact, that's what they come to him and say. Don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're going to die? He's so in control. He knows when his death is going to be, how he's going to die, who it is that's going to kill him. He knows fully and confidently that this is not his moment. He is not going to perish at the Sea of Galilee in a a boat. He's not going to drown. That's not the end of the story. So he goes downstairs and takes a nap because he's tired, because he's human, because his human body is wearing down. He's had a very busy day. He's been doing healing and teaching and traveling. They get into the boat. They're going to the other side. He decides to take a nap. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Yeah, that's right. Jesus doesn't care. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, you got it right. You're all going to drown. That's the way this story ends. You're all going to end up at the bottom of the sea, and he's going to sleep right through the whole thing. Yes, that's exactly how this thing ends. They come to him and say, don't you care that we're perishing? Now, if Jesus is anything like me, and probably like all of you, he hates to get woken up. Because I know I hate to get woken up, especially over something that is settled. 
It's already okay. Where is your faith? And being aroused, says verse 39, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. I can't even make my cat sit down. <laughs> that deserved a laugh. Or your grandchildren. How many things are you really in control of in this life? I accuse my wife sometimes of hiding things on me. And they're right where I left them. Because I don't even have control over inanimate objects. They seem to disappear and then show up. I, I have no control over anything. He has absolute authority, absolute control over absolutely everything, whether it's demons, whether it's the devil himself, whether it's sickness, whether it's life and death, whether it's the quick and the dead, whether it's weather, whether it's weather, even if it's storms, He's in control of it. And all he has to do to stop the wind, the gale, the sea, the waves, all he has to do to stop them is say, hush, quit it. And it lays down at his feet like a puppy. I mean, it just stops immediately. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? They've already seen him do the miracles. They've seen him healing people. They've seen the mobs. They've seen him feeding mobs with a couple fish, a couple loaves. They've seen blind people seeing They've seen lame people walking, dancing, shouting for joy. They have seen the very miracles that would emphasize the fact that he is the very son of God on planet earth. They've seen all that. But bring a little storm. And what do they do immediately? We're dying! Don't you care? Okay, be honest with yourself. When's the last time you were going through a storm and you heard yourself say to God, don't you care? Don't you care? I'm suffering. I'm hurting down here. This is tough. Don't you care? Yeah, he cares. Yes, he's intimately involved in it. In fact, he knew the storm was coming when he told them to get in the boat. It turns out it was a test of their faith. So that he could say to them, how is it after everything you've experienced, after everything you've seen, how is it that you have no faith? Why would you wake me up for this? Wouldn't you know that I would have control over these things? It was during a storm that Jesus came walking on the water. You think he's going to drown? He's in absolute control of everything in the natural world. And so he says, why are you so timid? Why are you afraid? How about him sending the storm? <laughs> yeah. How about that? <laughs> him sending the storm, him controlling the storm. He's in charge of it. And yet they, for all the things they had seen and experienced, 
Nevertheless, yet they were afraid. How many times, by the way, and you probably don't know the exact number. I don't know the exact number. But you've seen it time and time again. Jesus shows up and he says, don't be afraid. It's me. Don't be afraid. Because people get around him and they're constantly demonstrating what they really are. They're afraid. We as human beings have two primary motivations. Gain comfort, avoid pain. And we spend most of our life doing things that cover our insecurities. Because most of our life is about the things we're afraid of. What are we, what's going to happen next week? What's going to happen tomorrow? How am I going to eat? What if this happens? What if that happens? I'm afraid of the future. I'm afraid of myself. I'm afraid of everybody else. I'm afraid of what you think of me. We're constantly afraid. So we're constantly dressing ourselves a certain way or buying certain ornaments or driving certain cars or doing certain things so that people will accept us because we live our whole lives in this state of constant fear. And every time Jesus shows up, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's what he said to them right here. They had every good cause to be afraid. It looked like they were going to all drown. And he says, where's your faith? Because faith drives out fear. If you have faith, if you have confidence that God knows what he's doing, if you have faith that Christ is with you through the events of your life, through the storms of your life, then even in the midst of it, you don't have to be afraid because you know he's got it. Yes, you had your hand up. It's a question of timing. They would be perfectly happy if you awakened a little earlier. Right, right. It, it kind of reminds you when Lazarus died. He tarried and tarried and tarried. Yeah, waited three days. Yeah, and, yeah. and they came to him and they said, oh, if only you had been here. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Yeah. yeah. We're not happy with his time, sense of timing. Yeah. And it's up to him and his timing. So, did they perish in the boat? No. But did they have to endure the storm first? Yeah. Yeah. Did the storm overcome them? No. No. What did the storm end up doing? Increasing their faith. Growing their faith. So what was the point of the storm? To teach them trust in him. To teach them faithfulness. Despite the fact that they were going through a storm. So Jesus was in charge of the storm, and he brought the storm. Jesus is in charge of the deliverance, and he brought the deliverance. But like Conrad just said, it's a matter of timing. He made sure they went through the storm so that he could also teach them to have confidence in him and not be afraid as long as he was with them. Is he with you? Yes. What are you afraid of? Yeah, sometimes... People have said to me, I would be more Christian outwardly if I just wasn't kind of afraid. I'm afraid of what people will think of me. I'm not going to get invited to as many parties, or I might lose my job, or I might, all the reasons, all the rationales for not being outwardly, obviously Christian. And so you've got all these Christians who are kind of holding back instead of proclaiming Christ openly, freely, instead of doing the very thing that we're supposed to do, sow the seed. 
Instead of doing that, we're, we're afraid. Jesus says, what are you afraid of? You got me. I'm with you. What are you afraid of? Look, if the Lord of glory is with you, what man can hurt you? What man can harm you? And by the way, you shouldn't fear what men can do to you. You should fear what God can do to you. And so, that's the story of the storm. Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid, says verse 41, which I find ironic and funny at the same time because a minute ago they were in a storm and they were afraid. And then he calmed the storm and they became more afraid. They were more fearful of him than they were of the storm. The storms of life will happen But if you ever encounter the real God, if you ever encounter the real Christ and the power of God incarnate in your life, if you ever experience that, you're going to come to a very genuine, reverent fear. And you're going to understand your obligation before him and that he has the absolute right to lay himself on you for the rest of your life. And you will say, yes, sir. Yes, absolutely. You're God. I'm not. You do whatever you got to do. They were afraid of the storm. Once the storm was calmed, they became very much afraid. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Okay, let's answer the question. Who then is this? Has to be the son of God. That's what Mark is getting at. That has to be the Son of God. So when he gets him to the cross, that has to be the Son of God on the cross. That means that the reason he's on the cross is infinitely significant. And that's what Mark is getting at through demonstrating over and over again the absolute authority of the Son of God on planet Earth. Questions? Comments? Yes, sir. Are you under the impression we can hear you? I think it's interesting <laughs> that when Jesus addresses them in verse 40, he uses a word that means fearful or timid. Yeah. But in verse 41, it's not the same word. It, it means they're filled with terror. Yeah. So I'm thinking normally I would be terrified by a storm. Mm-hmm that was filling my boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. But no, them seeing the power that Jesus had over the storm terrified, terrified him. Absolutely. Put flesh and blood on it for a moment. If it was you, and there's a gang of us, and we're just in a boat, and a storm comes up, and Jeff stands up and says, quit it, and the storm stops, we're going to have a whole different opinion of Jeff. Way to go, Jeff. We're going to have a very genuine fear of Jeff because that's going to be something that we don't comprehend. Because, as I said at the beginning of this morning, I said Jesus is going to do something that humans can't do. And the very fact that he does it makes all the humans go, I'm terrified by the fact that you can do that. So, 
That's who you're dealing with. That's the real Jesus of the Bible. Anything else? We are good. All right. Say goodbye to the internet congregation then. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.